In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Gospel reading this morning from Matthew chapter 9 presents us with two separate accounts, which are somewhat sandwiched together, of two different women being restored by Jesus. These two healings are all connected in the same sandwich sort of a way in the Synoptic Gospels, that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with this sort of break to attend to the hemorrhaging woman, which gives a dramatic pause, let's say, which increases the tension as, as Jesus then journeys to see the dead daughter's official, or the dead daughter of the official. Both of these accounts speak to the issue of ritual purity or uncleanness, both women, both the woman with the discharge of blood as well as the dead body would render anyone who touched them as unclean, which in the Old Testament system, it's important to note, was not a moral term, but rather a liturgical or ritual one. The person who was ritually unclean could not participate in the normal ritual and liturgical life of the community, but was not in a state of sin in the way in which we might associate those words impurity or uncleanness today. Having said that, though, I don't deny that the most likely is that through the course of time, it would have become very easy for a community to start to judge the ritually unclean, the isolated, for some reason or another, and perhaps even start to believe that the reason for whatever ailment that they might have that's making them unclean could have been a punishment from God for their sin. I think this all adds to the shock of Jesus' clear disregard for these ritual matters. And even though the gospel writers don't explicitly mention this, I think if you're a Jewish person at the time, you would have not failed to see this and to be shocked about how much Jesus didn't care. He didn't care about any of this. This speaks to what the gospel writers constantly portray as we saw just a few verses prior in verse 13, that Jesus is more interested in mercy than sacrifice. And in this episode, what we see is a significant reversal. So there's the fear that to come into contact with an unclean person would render that individual unclean. But when Jesus touches or is touched by an unclean person, he's not made unclean by their impurity. Rather, they are rendered clean by him because Jesus is the one who has this authority he has authority not only over sickness but what this episode is trying to convey as well Jesus has the authority over death the difficult thing I think that we see in Jesus's ministry is that even though he heals many people not everyone in Palestine was healed some were healed some, a few, were raised from the dead, but most weren't. And I think many of us, especially if you are in a season desirous of healing, find it kind of difficult to hear these stories because you're perhaps left with a question of why. Why would Jesus heal others but leave me in my sickness? I think that this difficulty is compounded by the question of faith, that is, perhaps many of us feel, or we have been told, that at least part of the reason that we might be suffering is because our faith isn't strong enough. And in fairness, I think we have to recognize it at least, it does seem that 
in Jesus' miracles, oftentimes that faith is cited as the reason for healing. Can't deny that. Jesus even here says explicitly to the hemorrhaging woman, your faith has saved you. So what do we do with that? Does that mean that you are not receiving healing because your faith is faulty or perhaps you are in sin? It seems to me that faith clearly plays a role, and we obviously can't deny how often Jesus points to it. But we also have to take into account that it doesn't always follow this pattern. There are healing accounts where no reference to faith is made at all. And also there are healing accounts, like here with the official's daughter, wherein it's not the faith of the individual, but it's a faith of somebody else. As I just said, it's the faith of the father that makes then the daughter come back to life. I also think of when the friends lower down their paralytic friend on a stretcher through the roof, and Jesus sees their faith and he heals the paralytic. I think this should give us hope that when sometimes maybe we do feel like our faith is lacking, it's okay. We can rely on the faith of others to carry us on the stretcher to Jesus. There's a prayer that's often said by the priest before communion, which asks that God would look not on our sins, but rather on the faith of his church. And that according to that, the faith of the community, not our individual faith, not our individual sin, but according to the faith of his church, that he would grant us peace. I think it's also encouraging to see that sometimes Jesus accepts a faith that is by no means perfect. If you'll recall from Mark chapter 9, Jesus said unto him, All things are possible to him that believes. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. This faith, which was obviously full of doubt and unbelief, was sufficient for Jesus to heal that man's son. And finally, I think we have to accept the reality. We have to. It's difficult. But the reality that I began, began with that Jesus doesn't heal everybody. Sometimes remaining in sickness, at least for a season, who knows, is perhaps what God has willed for us. This is hard, especially as someone myself who's desirous of healing and in a season of it, can say it's nothing short of a mystery, but I do take comfort in the fact that this was also something that St. Paul had to endure. He writes in 2 Corinthians, I'm sure you've heard it, says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, that is, to beat me. So Paul believes that God gave him a messenger of Satan, or allowed a messenger of Satan to beat him continuously. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is one I'm still trying to figure out. Paul obviously has something that makes him 
boast in his infirmities as an invitation or an occasion for Christ's power to be made more manifest in him. Still trying to figure that one out. So returning then to our story here with these two women, there are several Old Testament accounts coming primarily from First and Second Kings about how the raising of the dead is a miracle which demonstrates or confirms that someone is a true prophet. And this is explicitly described as one of the works of the Messiah by Matthew in chapter 11. And it seems as though this resurrection is meant to foreshadow Jesus' own resurrection, as he will defeat sickness and death once and for all by taking it upon himself on Calvary's tree, but then will rise victoriously on Easter Sunday. It's interesting here how Jesus describes death as sleep. And I think it's a little bit confusing at first, because Jesus goes explicitly to bring her back to life, yet he says she's simply sleeping. As one New Testament scholar comments, he says, Jesus is using this metaphorically, he says, if death is sleep, then it allows the possibility of waking up. So death, therefore, is not the end. And in the case of this girl, it will prove to be only a temporary experience. Her death is real, but it is not final. Jesus' resurrection has overcome the finality of death and given a new force to the metaphor of sleep, which can apply to all those who die, not just the very few who Jesus will resuscitate during his earthly ministry. In other words, even in death, if death is sleep, then we learn that death is not the end yet merely, like sleep, a temporary state. As the funeral liturgy puts it, at the moment of death, for your faithful people, O Lord, life is not ended, only changed. This speaks to the reality which remains for both of these women who were healed by Jesus, both the woman who was healed and restored and the girl then who was brought back to life will then still return to death. What this teaches us is that even those who experience the grace of receiving healing from our Lord still have to continue on in this path of faithful discipleship into their death until they meet death again. There's no escaping that reality. They will still have to experience, as embodied in the Episcopal slap of confirmation, that the life the Christian life is one of hardship. The Christian life is one of repentance, one in which we have never fully arrived until that final day. So to conclude here, I'll end with this. Whether we are healed or not, it seems like the actual ailment is a second-order thing. Both, circumstance, both circumstances, that is, both sickness and health, can be the substance or the means through which then God works in us to bring us into a deeper relationship with him, which is the first order thing. That in both sickness and health, we might come to know God more deeply and follow him more faithfully all the way until our life's end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.